Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, sitting here in my home studio in Oxford, and thrilled that through the power of the internet, I am joined by my beloved co-host Octavia Bright from London. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. How are you doing today? I am okay. I would say <laughs> I'm about a 6.5 out of 10, which is pretty close to as high as I get these days. Um, Good. That's not so bad. Yeah. <laughs> out. The birds are out tweeting away outside, which is absolutely lovely. And I went up to um, Hampstead Heath this morning, which is a little bit of a walk from my flat, but not too far. And just got big lungfuls of fresh air before there were lots of other people around. And it was very, very, very fucking restorative, I would say. Um, how about you? How are you doing? Uh, you know, as every week I'm up and down, some days are better than others. This week was tough for some reason. And I talked to a few friends who said the same. I, th- there was something that felt like too much about this week. I but, had the same feeling. Yeah. yeah. But we're recording this at the beginning of a bank holiday weekend. And I think we're both feeling the endorphins that come with some of a, a, a break. Although yeah. you have to work all day. You just told me. I so. do have to work so all day. <laughs> But it's okay. It's good work. It's work that I love. I think we're going to go on a long walk later, which will be nice. Yeah, Um, really good. You just got to get moving in these times, you know, move the body, connect with your physical self. Totally. It's very easy to feel like a brain in a jar at the moment, I think. I agree. Um. (laughs) Well, also, it's just quite funny because I'm looking at you on my tiny screen on my phone. And so you kind of are a brain in a jar. I would, you know, being a big brain isn't a bad thing. No, not at all. But I, I also like the body part of living. Yes, me too. And I like your body. <laughs> I'm blushing. That is a great segue into our show. I'm actually very excited about the theme of the show today, which is intimacy. Something that I've been thinking about a lot lately under lockdown, when a certain kind of intimacy with my partner is very available to me and I'm sort of relying on even more and yet other kinds have been rendered impossible and other people, you know, don't have access to any intimacy. So today we just wanted to think about that. We'll be discussing what intimacy means in fiction, which writers from Henry James to Sally Rooney have been able to capture it, and what it means to write in an intimate style. And we're especially excited because our guest today, Garth Greenwell, is a writer who you could say has spent much of his career writing fiction that chronicles intimacy. His second book, Cleanness, follows an American teacher living in Sofia, Bulgaria, as he navigates relationships with his students, love, and sex. Can you introduce Garth Octavia? Sure thing, Carrie Plitt. Garth Greenwell is the author of What Belongs to You, a novel about an American teacher in Bulgaria and his relationship with a young hustler named Mitko, which won the British Book Award for the debut of the year. He returned to the same narrator and location for Cleanness. His writing has been published widely, including in the New Yorker, the Paris Review, Vice, the London Review of Books and the New York Times Book Review. He lives and teaches in Iowa City. So today you'll hear our interview with Garth. We'll talk more generally about intimacy in literature. And finally, we will give our usual book recommendations. So come closer, let us put our arms around you, and get enveloped for the next hour by literary friction. That was that was charming, Carrie. <laughs> I mean it, I just want to hug all of you. I know. We'll put our arms around you, we will. Garth Greenwall, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Well, thanks so much for having me. So we've asked you to start with a reading. Do you mind setting it up for us? Sure. I'm going to read just the last two paragraphs of the second chapter of Cleanness, um, which is called Gospodar. And I think all you need to know is that um, 
an encounter the narrator has had has gone very bad and he has fled from a situation in which um, he has been terrified. Um, I think that's all you need to know. Oh, and that he has, um, as, as part of getting away from this situation that's turned violent, um, he's smashed a window and has cut himself. We'll find out. It was very late. The boulevard was quiet. And if in a moment someone would emerge from the little convenience store, de no noshno, its window said day and night. If in a moment someone would emerge to investigate, I had time to get away as I thought of it, walking one block and then another without passing a soul. I kept my head down, trying to be blank and unplaceable, trying to calm what I felt, which was pain and relief and shame and panic still, even though I thought I was clear that I was far enough now to go on uncaught. But I couldn't calm what I felt. Something rose in me I couldn't keep down, as I couldn't keep walking at the pace I had set with each step my foot was more tender and there was something else to a nausea climbing to my throat I was going to be sick. I turned quickly into the space between two buildings, an alleyway lined with trash bags and refuse, among which I bent over or crouched, unable to stand. But it wasn't with bile or sickness that I heaved, but with tears, which came unexpected and fluent and hot, consuming in a way I hadn't known for a very long time that maybe I had never known. I raised my hands, wanting to cover my face, though there was no one to see I was still ashamed of my tears, and I saw that my right hand was covered with blood. In the light from the street, I could see where my wrist was torn, a small, deep wound where it had caught on the glass. Stupid, I thought again, stupid. At the wound or my weeping, I'm not sure which. Why should I weep, I thought, at what, when I had brought it all upon myself, and I took one of my socks from my pocket and pressed it to the wound, wrapping it around my wrist and folding the cuff of my sleeve over it, not knowing what else to do. It was a fit of weeping violent and brief, and as my breath steadied, I felt a sense of resolution that I had been lucky and must learn from that luck. I wouldn't go back to such a place. I thought this would be the end of it. But how many times had I felt that I could change? I had felt it through all the long months with our months that I had spent for all my happiness in a state of perpetual hunger, and so at the same time I felt it, I felt too that my resolution was a lie, that it had always been a lie, that my real life was here. And I thought this even as I struggled to climb from the new depth I had been shown. And even as I climbed or sought to climb, I knew that having been shown it, I would come back to it when the pain had faded and the fear, maybe not to this man, but to others like him. I would desire it, though I didn't desire it now. And for a time, I would resist my desire, but only for a time. There was no lowest place, I thought. I would strike ground only to feel it give way gaping beneath me, and I felt with a new fear how little sense of myself I have, how there was no end to what I could want or to the punishment I would seek. For some moments, I wrestled with these thoughts, and then I stood 
and turned back to the boulevard, composing as best I could my human face. Thank you. That's a beautiful passage and a beautiful reading. So the first thing I wanted to ask you is that you've said in other interviews that if you had to use one word to describe this book, it would be intimacy. Um, And actually, that is the broader theme of our show today in honor of your book. So can you describe how you define the word intimacy and why it's so central to this book? Well, that's a good question. So yeah, the idea of what it means to face someone or what it means to have a face-to-face encounter with someone, I guess, and what it means to try to reach across whatever gulfs of difference exist between people. In, in the books that I write, there are often differences of culture, of language, of class. Um, to try to reach across that distance, that difference, that gulf, and encounter some kind of human surplus that overflows the structures um, that often determine our lives and determine the ways that we can see one another and the kinds of stories we tell about one another. So I guess I'm interested in moments, you know, when one strives um, to be close to another human being. And I'm interested in the things that get in the way of that closeness and the things that enable that closeness and the way that that closeness is always frustrated and yet also something that seems maybe infinitely valuable to me that survives that frustration. Everything that you just described there is also linked by a sense of power, right? There's a power dynamic in all of those relations. And I felt that very strongly beating through the book, you know, the relationship between intimacy and power and the slippages of intimacy and power. And um, and I wonder if you agree if if intimacy is inseparable from power relation, or if there's a kind of intimacy that bypasses that? You know, I think we dream of a kind of intimacy that bypasses that. Um, I guess it does seem to me that um, all, all human relation is run through with power. And, you know, that's, that's not a new thought. That's an old thought. You know, I mean, that's sort of Nietzsche's idea or, you know, Foucault's idea that sort of power is the name for what happens between human beings. Like, it seems to me that that's true and yet also that it's inadequate. Um, And so part of that surplus I'm looking for is some sense of the human that seems to get us beyond that sort of struggle for power. And I hope that the book kind of treads a fine line of faith that such a surplus exists and also skepticism about our ability to find it or its durability. It also seems to me, I guess, that that, that those relations of power are always more complicated than the simple stories we tell about them and that they are quicksilver and that you know, there are always multiple kinds of power competing within any encounter. And one of the things that interests me in literature is to sort of freeze a charged moment and try to parse all of that out. I mean, this book is almost a series of charged moments, isn't it? That's what drives the narrative. And I love how it it traces the way that desire desire is enough a narrative of its own basically and it it's it's sufficient <laughs> yeah i mean you know i think desire is the great narrative you know and in some ways you know one of the things that makes um desire the great um 
inciting incident of plot and um, something that makes it such a fascinating way to look at these questions of power and agency is that, you know, desire on one hand, like supercharges our agency, you know, like desire gives us something to seek. People go to great lengths to achieve their desire. It's the great animating force of the quest narrative. And yet, Desire is also something that takes all of our agency away from us because desire is something that happens to us. None of us gets to choose what we desire. Desire causes all sorts of trouble. It messes up all our plans. And that seems kind of endlessly fascinating to me, you know, how we then negotiate that or navigate that. I think Picador have published this as a fiction book, haven't they? Not as a novel or a collection of stories, very deliberately. And there are so many things that unite all of these chapters in the book. The idea of desire, of course, but also it, you know, it has the same narrator and it's in the same place, but it's it's not necessarily linear. I loved that actually, because it felt very freeing to be to almost be carried along the narrative by feeling rather than by any sort of plot. But it also made me wonder how, just how the process of structuring it went for you. How did you want to put all these things together and set them against each other? And I I also always wonder about what maybe got left out. Was there a certain element or story that you wanted to include that you just couldn't when you were writing Cleanness? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, first, so I'm I'm really grateful to Picador and to FSG, my American publisher, for letting me publish this as a book of fiction. Um, there was some conversation about that. You know, there was a certain sense that oh, you know, we should just call it a novel. Um, and I'm I'm happy for people to talk about it as a novel or talk about it as a collection. But to me, neither of those terms feels quite right. I do think it's a book of charged moments and these nine chapters, it feels like they are these sort of nodes of intensity that are then placed in a constellation by which I mean that, that in my experience of the book, there are kind of charged lines of energy between them, sort of holding them in relation that are not the usual lines of novelistic energy. They're not chronology and they're not the cause and consequence of plot. My first education in art was in music. I was an opera singer um, through university. That's what I studied. And my first experience of how pieces can be made into larger holes in art was the song cycle, was singing like German leader cycle. And so like the model for the book in my head is um, is something like Schubert's Winterreise, where like the connections between the parts have as much to do with um, key change or texture or motif than with um, the usual connective tissue of putting narrative sequences together. And the structure, so the, the chapter that I read from Gospodar was the first chapter that I wrote after uh, finishing What Belongs to You. Is the first chapter I wrote after leaving Bulgaria and coming back to the United States. And when I wrote that chapter, which is about a, a sadomasochistic encounter that begins consensually and then slowly becomes non-consensual, when I wrote that, it called into existence another chapter like I knew that I had to write another story, another scene from the other side of that 
sort of S&M dynamic. And it would be years before I wrote that second chapter, which is the second to last chapter in the book called The Little Saint. But the fact that Gospodar called it into existence also called into existence the structure of the book. And it's really at that moment that it became a book. And then the structure kind of exerted more and more pressure as I continued writing. Um, so there weren't like big um, chapters that had been written that were excluded, but there certainly were ideas that might have taken root if the structure had been different, I think. So I do think the structure kind of determined what what got written. It feels like something that I'm seeing a lot of queer writers doing that makes me so excited is this kind of alternative approaches to form. Like I spoke to Ocean Vuong about this and the book I'm going to recommend when we get to that is also um, by a queer writer. And it's, again, using structure as well as language to interrogate form and ideas. And I love listening to you describe that, that of course, the way you approach describing an experience is going to shape the relation you have to it in the text. And the thought that it's come together like a piece of music is, it's its a very liberating thing to listen to, you know, and I'm sure any writers listening will, will find that because this monolithic approach to literature that believes that you begin with plot and, for, you know, traditional chapters leading on from one another, I it's not where the richest writing feels like it's happening at the moment, to me anyway. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I do love those kinds of traditionally structured novels. And, and you know, I do think there are people who are doing that brilliantly now. It's also true, though, that queer lives have never fit into a sort of ready-made structure that the culture has handed to us. And there is a way that that traditional plot shape of a novel, um, where a life moves through certain stations, I mean, obviously something like the marriage plot is clearly sort of about heterosexual life, but in general, the usual stations of a life, um, the idea of a shape that a life should take that will involve you know, a single central erotic relationship that will involve children, that will involve a certain shape of career, like... That has just never been adequate to queer lives. And there is something really exciting for me to see emerging in queer literature, different kinds of shapes that narrative might have. Like, so to think, and I think about this even in my own thinking about narrative, because I do often think, like when I teach a workshop, I'll talk about things like the through line of a story or the emotional center of a story, or I'll talk about like a well-made story has a kind of centripetal force. And, you know, all of those things, I think more and more, are weirdly based on a sense of human life as fundamentally monogamous, as fundamentally, you know, having a single emotional affective center. And it's so exciting for me a writer, I don't know if in the UK this writer is known, but a very brilliant trans writer named T. Fleischman, um, who has a book called Time is the Thing the Body Moves Through, which is so fascinating because I think it's genuinely trying to find a narrative form that is polyamorous, that sort of answers to a life that has multiple durable, affective and erotic centers. And that's just, I mean, that's thrilling to sort of think that as we as a culture strive to valorize ever more diverse shapes that a life might take, 
so too, you know, in narrative, in art, we're seeking new forms that are accommodating of those lives. One of the things that I really liked about the book was that you set these sadomasochistic encounters alongside the sort of center of the book, which is the story of the narrator falling in love with R. And the way that the book is structured, I think it sort of almost argues with its structure that these experiences should be given equal weight in terms of how we think about the the character's life. And I, I, I wonder if you feel that way, especially when talking about monogamy versus a sort of more polyamorous way of looking at experience and desire and sex. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, one of the things I wanted to think about in the book, um, you know, so at, at its heart, there is this more traditional romantic relationship that seems to be monogamous, that is, you know, seems to resonate with ideas of devotion and settledness and domesticity. Um, and like, I think that is a beautiful model of a life and it's transformative for the narrator because it's an experience of a kind of love that everything in his life had taught him he, he would be excluded from. And so to find it just radically reorients his sense of himself and his world. But I didn't want the book to feel as though um, an argument were being made that that life or that that model had more value than the kinds of relationships that say are explored in what belongs to you. Um, you know, and so the narrator has certainly been taught to associate a certain kind of life um, with purity, morality, cleanness. Um, what I wanted to do, and that, and then, you know, with other parts of himself, with filth. And, you know, one of the things that I hope the book does is first to break down that dichotomy and to sort of explore the ways that, you know, things that are associated with cleanness, like monogamous sex, a kind of public sociality and citizenship, a kind of tenderness, and then other things that are, and also with a kind of affirmative sense of the self, with kind of pride, with a sense of, you know, um, queerness as something celebratory and, and you know, a sense that we've, we've gotten away from any of the shame that we were taught to feel about ourselves earlier on. And then filth with the opposite of all those things, with the kinds of desires that are explored in Gospodar, with, you know, cruising, with um, shame, with cruelty. And one of the things I hope the book does is to sort of show how, in fact, um, nothing in our experience, human beings, we are made up out of contraries and contradictions, and nothing in our experience breaks down so easily. And that really, in cleanness, we find filth, and in filth, we find cleanness. And really, I think a lot of human culture has been built on the idea that, you know, these contraries were made out of, like a desire for cleanness, a desire for filth, that the only way to resolve them is to brutally repress one of them and valorize the other and say, we must strive to be clean. And that part of us that wants to bathe in filth, we must brutally repress, or we must strive to be proud. And a part of us that is still inflected by shame, we must brutally try to wash away. Well, that just seems to me like a recipe for disaster. And, you know, one of the things I hope the book explores is, you know, is it possible instead 
to seek out structures in a life, structures in narrative too, that um, can accommodate these contradictions and accept that they are irresolvable, but to try to find a shape that makes sort of our wholeness bearable instead of forcing us to choose one half and try to strip away the other. I think it definitely succeeds. <laughs> but because what it does for me anyway, I read it and was thinking this is a book that argues for praxis in all things. You know, it's like you, you're not going to discover these things unless you try them out. And I love the fact that in every one of these charged moments, it's it, it, the, the, the protagonist is learning every time. And so are we alongside them. And the fact that, as you say, there are moments where you engineer a reconciling of shame with pleasure or cleanness with filth or love with with despair and disappointment I think is very important and I think it I don't know it stands in a really helpful opposition to the traditional romance narratives that are all about resolution as you say you know all about picking one over the other but I think also it's important that your that your narrator is a a teacher because it kind of grounds us in this space of learning and I was that something I mean obviously he's he's a character that you've developed in your first novel but was that something that you were intentionally weaving through or did it just happen kind of naturally well that's an interesting question so I mean one of the goals for the book was to think really seriously about teaching um, you know, which is one part of the narrator's world that's mostly excluded from what belongs to you. And which, you know, in my life as a student and as a teacher, um, you know, that student-teacher relationship has been so um, important and formative and charged and transformative. Um, and I wanted to explore that. And I am also interested in, um, sure, sort of, these moments as educative kind of, you know, in the etymological sense, you know, I mean, if, if education kind of at its roots means to sort of lead someone out or through something, um, you know, I mean, that is what these chapters do with the narrator. And I do think, you know, um, he often does feel like he's being educated. He often feels like he's having realizations. And that was another thing that I hope the structure can allow. Like I'm interested in moments of revelation, moments of seeming acquisition of knowledge, like epiphanies. I'm interested in them in literature and I'm interested in them in life, like moments when the chaos of the world seems to order itself and make sense but I'm also really skeptical about them. And so like, I wanted to, you know, like when he arrives at a moment where it seems like some educative process has been successful, like I wanted both to honor that, but also with, you know, these sort of nodes of intensity also suggests that maybe those moments of realization, like maybe they are valuable within their charge, the charged sphere of their chapter, but maybe they're not necessarily portable. Maybe we don't get to carry them with us to the next story, to the next scene. Um, you know, that's the first story is about um, a, a student of the narrator coming out to him and telling him the story of his first love and his first heartbreak. And it's, you know, this moment of such intensity, you know, I mean, I think first love and first heartbreak, you know, 
you feel like it's utterly singular and unique and no one has felt it and you'll never feel it again. And I wanted to write a story that could both honor that and sort of honor that sense and honor the ways in which this boy is, you know, his whole life will be marked by this moment and also honor the teacher's sense of like, you'll get over it, you know, in that sense of sort of being outside of that intensity and sort of saying it. So to try to find a way to explore that um, was also something I hope the structure could do. I get the sense that the narrator is a good teacher. You know, he thinks a lot about his role. Um, his students really seem to respect him. That comes across in, in the first chapter. But at the same time, like speaking of the complexities that one person can hold, the last story is all about him doing something that um, if if somebody explained it to me in a conversation, I would say, well, that that is unforgivable. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, you know, it, it's it's something that that crosses boundaries that he knows he's crossed. And I I wonder how you were thinking about that in terms of intimacy, um, getting back to that word, and also the, the, the intimacy of the teaching profession. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so, you know, one of the things that fascinates me about teaching is that it is, you know, so full of potential to do good and so fraught with, you know, the peril of doing harm. And that very often we can't know um, whether we're doing one or the other. Um, in the last story, you know, I wanted to write about a situation that seemed so complicated to me. And really, this is the only reason I make art is because there is something that seems to me um, like all of my other tools for thinking are inadequate to it. Like my tools for moral judgment, my sort of reason-making tools, they won't let me navigate a situation that feels to me like an abyss. And art is the tool I have for navigating the abyss. And so this moment where the narrator, um, with two students who have come back after a year away at college, so they're not his students anymore, they take him out to celebrate his years in Bulgaria, he's returning to the United States. And they tell him, you know, we want to have a real, like a Bulgarian night out with you. We want to go clubbing with you. And the narrator agrees. And so there's a beautiful impulse there, this impulse to set aside the power structure, the authority structure of teacher-student And I think what they want to do is to have a kind of human face-to-face interaction without that and to experience friendship. I mean, I think these are three people, these two students and the teacher, these are three people who love each other. And, um, you know, there is something in their desire to have fun with each other that seems to me very beautiful. Also, the narrator who, you know, is someone who feels tyrannized by desire And one of his survival mechanisms as a teacher has been to have absolutely clear and kind of uncrossable lines and to have a kind of structure of power and of authority that makes clear um, he's on one, he's on one side of that and the students are on the other. And that that is a way to sort of not allow Eros to have a negative impact in these relationships. Well, when that authority structure goes away, 
Eros becomes less easy to control. And to me, there is a real, I'll say that I never in fiction, like never would I write a story with the desire to judge a character. Like if I feel that I have the wherewithal to judge a character, like I don't need fiction to do that. You know, that's a tool that doesn't require the kinds of sentences I write and the kinds of scenes I write. But this moment that to me seems kind of fathomlessly ambiguous and complicated, where the narrator does feel that he has done something unforgivable. You know, it was a really hard story to write. It took me years to write. And and I guess, you know, it's interesting. I, I got shortly after I finished writing that story, or shortly after actually it was published, you know, I got an invitation from a, a magazine here in the States. to They said, we want you to write the gay Me Too essay which like all of my alarm bells went off and I thought that's the last thing, like that is not a subject for a hot take, you know, Um, (laughs) like it's a fascinating subject because differentials of power and differentials of age um, have a history in queer and especially gay, not just gay male, actually, I think also lesbian relationships that is very different from the history they have in a heterosexual context. So like, It's true that it's not the same phenomenon, but I thought my feelings about that are so complicated. Like, I couldn't do that in an essay. And that chapter in Evening Out, I mean, that is my thinking about that subject, about those difficult questions of lines and boundaries and consent and invitation. Sex is so essential to the whole book. And I was thinking a lot about the language of sex as I was reading this, which I'm, I'm sure is something that you think about all the time. And it reminded me of when we spoke to Emer McBride, uh, actually recommended your book. And I think as an author, you have quite a lot of affinity with, I don't know if you, you agree with that, but who is also an excellent writer of sex. And when we spoke to her about how to write sex, she said, well, one of the things that's really hard about sex is we haven't developed a vocabulary for it in the same way that we have for so many of the other things that we do in our life. And so the, the you know, you have to, you have to work harder to find the words and to find the language. And I wonder if if you agree with that, because you strike me as someone who writes really well about sex, too, and is very, I think even in the book, you have a whole passage about how the words of pornography only start to mean something in the act, but sort of divorced from that, they seem silly or violent or whatever the, their meaning is outside of sex itself. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I adore Emer McBride, and I think she is one of our very best writers of sex. And I mean, Lesser Bohemians is just just an extraordinary. You know, you really do feel like you're watching someone invent invent new technologies to bring us closer to experience, closer to the sexual body. That there are passages from that I teach all the time because I find them so exciting. You know, so I guess I would come, I mean, I doubt very much that Emer and I would disagree on that, but I guess I do come at, come at it from a different direction. Like, so to me, it feels like in English, like one of the blessings of writing in English is not that there's a scarcity of languages to talk about sex, but in fact, that there's a plenitude. Um, and one of the things I feel immensely grateful for 
being someone who writes in English, is that you know Shakespeare and Chaucer brought all of the vocabulary of the sexual body into poetry for us, into you know literary language, so that I can use all of those glorious four-letter Anglo-Saxon words um, in a way that you know does not that does not seem alien to poetry. Like that's a gift that many languages have not received. My Bulgarian translators have really difficult times trying to to sort of match the texture of language in those passages because, you know, in just the history of Bulgarian literature, there has not been a Chaucer or a Shakespeare to kind of sacralize those words. And so there are words that feel pornographic and there are words that feel like the doctor's office, but both of those feel alien to poetry. So like, I feel really grateful for that. And then, you know, something that does fascinate, like I'm fascinated by how language can be inert and then it is suddenly charged and it feels electric. And I think lots of our language is that way. You know, I mean, I think, um, you know, the language of love is that way. The language, you know, with which we talk to our children is that way. The language of pornography is that way. Um, but I also think like a lot of poetry is that way. You know, I mean, if you took Hopkins out of the sonnet and sort of put that language on a prosy page, I think it would feel inert. But one of the challenges of being an artist whose material is words is taking this medium that we use every day almost always in a way that makes it in, that that makes it seem invisible to us sort of aesthetically inert and how can you take that material and find a way to put it in a frame and to charge it to electrify it one of my great teachers was the poet frank bedart who for me is the most important living american writer also a great writer of the sexual body and he sometimes talks about, he would talk in workshop about that, about, you know, feeling like when you find the right arrangements of word on the page, of white space on the page, when you find the right form, it's like a neon sign that you plug in and it all lights up. And so that's fascinating to me because, right, when you think about the dialogue of porn, like if you are not turned on, that is utterly ridiculous. And if you are turned on, it feels so eloquent and alive and affectively charged. And so, you know, how to do that on the page is something that fascinates me. Like, how do you turn on language? Yeah, I, I love the way that you, in this text, interrogate the language of sex within the narrator's experience of sex, because it really got to something that's, I think, at the core of human experience where you are at once especially physical bodily experience like sex where you're at once in the experience but you're still your your analytical mind is very rarely completely switched off and I think that you bring that very delicately into this text and I it's something I haven't seen explored that much in literature and it felt very human to me you know in a way that was important and was that something that you wanted to do yeah absolutely you know I've I, I, I have this line that I say sometimes about the book, which is actually true. And um, it was something that, it was a line that sprang into my head when I began writing Gospodar, that second story or chapter in the book. And it was that I wanted to write something that was 100% pornographic and 100% high art. 
And what I meant by that was something that was as explicit as I could make it, and that sort of rendered the sexual body as clearly as I could render it. And that was devoted to bodies in space, to like how two bodies are actually occupying a space together, and um, and yet was also um, like, and so that kind of explicitness, which you know. Um, is interesting to me, but is not really super interesting to me. Like, you know, we are um, overwhelmed with explicitness. You know, the internet gives us more explicitness than we could ever want. Like there's a way in which we've become maybe inured to a certain, to a certain kind of representation of the sexual body. And yet it does seem to me that there is a dearth of what I think of as embodiedness, which is bodies with consciousness. Like very often watching pornography, I have no sense of personhood, you know, and I'm not anti-porn at all, but it does seem like personhood has been expunged. So what interested me was not just explicitness, but also the combination of explicitness with the particular kind of sentence I write, which I do think of, you know, it's a sentence that has a history. It's a sentence that, you know, goes back to the devotional writers of the 16th and 17th century in England and through, you know, Proust and James and Wolfe and Baldwin. Like I, you know, I think of it as kind of like a technology for the production of inwardness or for the production of consciousness, you know, this little phenomenological sentence that we associate with the novel of consciousness. And it was that combination like explicitness in representing the body paired with this insistence on exploring consciousness as richly as possible. Like that seemed exciting. And that seemed actually, because I do think literature is the best technology we have for the communication of consciousness. And so that seemed like a kind of intervention literature could play in our cultural representations of sex and our thinking about sex, because I, you know, sex is interesting because it's among our densest forms of communication, our richest forms of communication and to sort of reclaim the sexual body, the pornographic body, the explicit body, you know, as a site of consciousness that seemed to me like it could be productive of revelation. Like that seemed an interesting path for research. I just want to end by asking you about love, because this is a novel infused with love and not just the domestic romantic love in the middle chapters, but all kinds of love. And it it was really wonderful for me to read right now, I think, um, when a lot of us are thinking about love and, and the different forms it can take and, and intimacy again. But one of the lines that I really loved is from the first chapter when uh, the narrator is talking to his student about his his first real love. And, and he, he talks about love that had made me at times such a stranger to myself. And I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit. What, what about love makes us strangers to ourselves? I mean, I guess, you know, there, there are kind of two ways I think about that statement that both feel true to me, even though, or maybe because they seem contradictory. Um, One is that I do think um, love radically disorients us and, makes us seem or become fools to ourselves. You know, we act in ways that later we look back on and we say, who was the person who acted in that way? So that's one side. 
The other side is that, you know, one of the things that I think is most exhilarating about the experience of falling in love is a sense of expansiveness, a sense of the world getting bigger, of one's sense of of what the world can be getting bigger, and also one's sense of oneself getting bigger, you know, that um, one's life expands in a way to accommodate another person. And, you know, love is a profoundly educative process. And I think one of its profoundest lessons for us is, um, and this is true both in in the sense of, of becoming foolish to oneself and also in that sense of expansiveness, is just how little we understand of ourselves, how we are always bigger than the stories we tell about ourselves or the new stories we tell to ourselves about ourselves. And um, yeah, I mean, that seems to me a profound gift that desire, pleasure, love can give us, that it can lead us to discoveries about ourselves. What a wonderful note to end on. Garth Greenwell, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much. The pleasure has been all mine. Thank you. This episode is sponsored by Picador. In this time of social distancing, we're using the internet more than ever to find connection. And this can be wonderful, but it can also be overwhelming. It can be exhausting keeping up with notifications, and there's a tendency to fall into a pattern of anxious scrolling. I definitely, definitely do that. So to try and provide some relief from social media overwhelm during lockdown, our sponsors, Picador, have created Picador Unplugged, a series of activities designed to take you offline for a short while. If you're looking to take some time away from Twitter and connect with a story and your creativity, or to just find the space to order your thoughts, check out Picador's Instagram, at Picador Books, and look at the unplugged highlight to find a variety of activities to help you do that. There are free audiobooks, short stories, and essays, a music playlist from Garth Greenwell, who you've just heard speak, a William Morris-inspired drawing prompt from Elizabeth McNeil, author of The Doll Factory, and there's lots more to come, including art, photography, and music, from a brilliant array of Picador authors. It's the perfect opportunity to take some time away from Twitter and connect with your thoughts. This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, which is intimacy. As I said in the introduction, intimacy is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. The quarantine has made me very aware of the daily intimacies of a long-term relationship, um, and the one that I still have, but also all of the intimacy that we've lost because we're all in our homes and how just essential that is actually in all of our lives. And also what is still possible over the internet, what intimacies we can find from texting and and calling and video chatting as well. One of the things that I've also noticed is that it's made me really hungry for stories about intimacy. I absolutely devoured the adaptation of Sally Rooney's Normal People on the BBC, which is really a story about intimacy as well. And what I really loved about that adaptation was it, it foregrounded intimacy sort of above anything else, including plot. And I think that's one of the things that Garth Greenwell does in his fiction too. So I was really glad that we were able to talk to him now. But first, I wanted to just ask you, because I think intimacy is a word that 
that has a lot of meanings and gets used a lot and could be defined in a lot of different ways. So maybe we can just talk about what it actually means for us to write intimate fiction. Uh, Well, I think that intimacy is really, it's a closeness, isn't it? It's a sense of closeness and that can be a physical closeness. But I think what's exciting, if not just horribly challenging at the moment, is that we're having to find other ways of being close. And like you said, all these screens that mediate our lives, they provide a certain kind of closeness that feels inadequate when it's held up alongside physical closeness. But I don't think it has to be. I think there's always a fundamental lack. But I think that language is a tool for intimacy and language is still available to us even in this separation. And that's where books come in. And I think thinking about how we can engage this tool that we that we all share to create the closeness that we can normally do with nonverbal cues and signals. You know, I'm very tactile and, and I am really being made aware of how much I communicate with the people I love by through touch, you know, and and hugging is very important when I care about somebody and being able to support someone with your physical presence. And I think that when we're thinking about this in terms of literature, we can learn from it in this moment, actually, like how to create through words, the sense of closeness that we're lacking. And there are some Mm. writers who do it so, so beautifully. And I think it's whether it's done from like a perspective where they're drawing a sense of intimacy between other characters, like for example, Elena Ferrante does that so well, where she traces the, this long intimacy and she traces the fluctuations that you have within a long intimacy and the challenges that come up, or whether it's through a style of writing that brings the body very proximate or that brings the sense of the other into a place of like real closeness. Yeah, I I like that word closeness. And when I was researching this show, there's a writer named Stacey Derrasmo who wrote a book called The Art of Intimacy, in which she explores how different writers have tackled intimacy. So oh, interesting. Useful to us. Um, yeah. But I just wanted to read her description because I think it's a really good place to start. She defines intimacy as what happens in the space between us. And then she goes on to say, it's not just about romantic love or sex, even, you know, friendships, the bonds of parents and children, the fleeting communion of strangers at a dinner party or on a train or a plane, crushes, being deeply moved by art or by a historical event, the relationship between a reader and writer. In all of these, that space between is vital, electric, and often drives the story. I really liked that. I liked how Garth defined intimacy as well by saying it's a sort of human surplus in the space between. It's not about the two people. It's about what is formed when we come together and become something separate from ourselves, but also part of ourselves. Yeah. Well, Esther Perel, actually, the the psychologist and writer talks about that and how a relationship between two people becomes a third entity. And if the two individuals who are in relation to one another, whether that's romantic, parental, friendship, whatever, think of the of the third space of the relationship as the thing that that they need to tend rather than their own needs, then intimacy can deepen, which I think is a really beautiful way of looking at it as well. Definitely. And I was thinking about, okay, which books or authors do I think of when I think of intimate fiction? And you know, again, there's a range of things that that could mean. But one of the things that I was thinking of is intimate books really make me feel close to the characters. The writer makes me feel that I know these characters and I know the the subtle shifts and um, 
machinations of of their mind and their relationships with others. And so I think Elena Ferrante is exactly the kind of writer who does that. Henry James, I know you're less of a fan. (laughs) Henry James is is a writer who's intimately concerned with the the shifting nature of how humans relate to one another. Um, And I think to to talk about a more contemporary writer, I already mentioned her, Sally Rooney. All of her fiction is about the power dynamics between people, the things left unsaid, the things that sometimes are indefinable in the way that we relate and the intimacies that we share. Mm, Yeah, yeah, the minute moments. And I guess, you know, I would say like a writer like... um, Tolstoy, for example, I don't think of him as a writer of intimacy at all. I think of him and Dostoevsky similarly as writers of ideas more than they are writers of intimacies. And I think that's what sets, you know, those are two different modes of being for a writer. Whereas, you know, I know we were both thinking of Mary Gateskill, who is such a writer of intimacy. And I realize in using those examples, I've just set up a gender binary that I really didn't mean to. Do you think that there's a perception that intimate writing is more the reign of women? than men? In some ways, yes, because I think you could think about intimate writing also along the lines of the domestic or the everyday or the familial. And that is often put in the category of women writers. I mean, when we've talked in the past about everyday writing, for instance, a lot of writing that I really love, it's writers like Alice Munro, Elizabeth Strout. And I think that is intimate writing, right? It has to do with that closeness. Mm. Um, Yeah, very much But male writers like Philip Roth or John Updike or James Salter... I think are intimate writers actually. And, you know, it's a very uh, limited perspective perhaps, but those are writers who are obsessed with relationships, with sex in particular, um, and with the minds of their characters. So I don't think there is a gender dynamic, although the gender binary comes from a misunderstanding of what intimate writing can and should be. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's it comes from this old-fashioned worrying and reductive idea that men write about ideas and women write about relationships, which is proved wrong again and again and again when you get into the literature that's in front of you. Exactly. Let's talk more about the style of intimate writing, because I think this is so interesting. Like, do you think that there's a language or a style that's better suited to intimate writing? I think it depends. I think that you can break this down in lots of different ways. Like on the one hand, there's um, nonfiction, certain kinds of nonfiction that are so intimate, like diaries. For example, I was thinking of Anais Nin or Susan Sontag's diaries, which are you know, so extensive and famous and really bring you very proximate to the writer herself. And then I was also thinking how biographies are an act of seeking intimacy with the dead person that is the writer is writing about. And they involve a great amount of intimacy with somebody's notes and diaries and, you know, the ephemera of a life, right? Like surely that kind of research is a truly, is a very deeply intimate relationship. But then poetry can be so intimate and so close. I was thinking about E.E. Cummings, for example, and Frank O'Hara. I think they both write incredibly Mm. intimate poetry. And there are thousands of other phenomenal poets who are doing the same thing. And their names are just beyond my grasp right now. But I think there's something about the spaces that poetry leaves in its expression that draws you as the reader into an intimate relationship with it. Because you can remember it and you can memorize it. You can end up drawing it into your own kind of intimate relationship with yourself, let alone with the text. 
Um, but then, of course, you know, writing that gets really into the body, however it does that, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, it's impossible not to think of. Like Emma McBride's The Lesser Bohemians is such an intimate book and it's intimate because it's about sex, but it's intimate also because we're so in the minds and we get to be in the minds of both characters and we get to see it from both perspectives. Yeah. In a discussion of intimate writing, I think you have to talk about sex, don't you? And yeah. I, I love talking to Garth about sex and how he thinks about sex and also Emer McBride, because of course, it's very hard to write about sex, or at least we perceive it to be difficult to write about sex with things like the Bad Sex Awards. And, you know, people are always laughing about these ludicrous sex scenes where people talk about flowers bursting open and hard wooden logs and things like that you know it's it seems <laughs> like both of you been reading <laughs> god that was Carrie, I, I think like we've just had a... an intimate insight into the work no, no, no. of your mind okay. listen listen in the bad sex awards which i do read every year because they're they are kind of fun to read that is often what happens Lots you know there powers. are just these terrible <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm okay, more into aubergines and clams, I've got to say. No, I think you're completely right. I think you're completely right. And I think listening to you, it made me have this idea that the reason that that writing is bad about sex is because that writing is kind of denying the intimacy of sex. It's taking the act away from the intimacy of the language that, you know, is intimate because it's language that we use. Like, I don't want to hear you describe a cock as a log of wood. I describe it as a cock, you know? A cock is a, a word that I know, that you know, that we, do you know what I mean? That is proximate to us. And maybe that's why some writers of sex shy away from it because actually they're not interested in representing intimacy. They're interested in representing some falsely like absurd idea of, of how to make sex poetic. And the reality yeah. of sex is that there is a poetry of sex that happens, but sex is also incredibly proximate and like unpoetic in some ways as well do you know what I mean totally and I really liked Garth Greenwell's point about having to create the atmosphere within the book for pornographic words to mean something definitely I think also moving away from sex you know books about parenting are also books about intimacy aren't they books about the relationship between a mother and I mean I think Jenny Offill writes beautifully about intimacy in that respect um, and books that get into the experience of pregnancy I mean it's one of the most intimate experiences you can have right growing another human being inside your inside your body so that's a whole other strand but the other thing I really wanted to bring up was just that books can be a tool for intimacy in themselves. And I think this is never, never more pertinent than right now. Well, as we've been discussing, we're apart from one another all the time. Um, and there's an idea that kind of communal experiences we can have, like watching a movie simultaneously or um, listening to music simultaneously, but actually reading and reading to one another and sharing passages that have meant something to to you with somebody else. You know, that's a, that's a really intimate act and you let somebody into your own psyche and the things that are important to you by sharing literature like I had a really powerful experience a couple of weeks ago with a book that you actually sent me which was The Red Tender of Bologna by John Berger it's just like a small essay and I read it to my dad on the phone and my father's in a nursing home with Alzheimer's and his mental capacity is very limited but we were able to share this experience and there was something in the words that brought a level of his consciousness back to the top. And when I finished reading it, he, he'd been wrapped in silence listening. And he said, that was superb. And it was just, it was incredible. And it was transformative. And it allowed something to happen between us that couldn't have happened with me just asking him how he was, you know? I've been 
holding it in my heart ever since and thinking about this time as a moment where actually sharing literature is so important if we can however we might you know that's very beautiful and I completely agree and I find myself in about 17 book clubs which I can't keep track of but I I can see why we all want to be reading the same books at the same time as each other because it is a, a means of connection that is very different from speaking on the phone or even even writing emails or letters to each other, like sharing that deep experience of language and art is essential. So profound. But I think also under these conditions of stress, it can be hard to find the words to express yourself fully. And that's where reaching for the words of, of a writer or, you know, in order to express how you're feeling can be really helpful as well. And that's why at weddings and funerals, people have readings, you know, because there are yeah. these moments of deep, intense emotionality where it's not always easy to express oneself authentically. So you can kind of cosplay as someone else and use their words. And I think, again, it's something that we can, we can use in this very separate time to kind of nurture one another as well, you know? Definitely. Should we talk about our favorite books about intimacy? What's Definitely. yours Definitely. Well, mine probably very unsurprisingly is The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson, um, which comes up a lot on the show, but it, it, it's so brilliant. And I think it is a really excellent example of different ways of writing intimately, actually. It's a, a genre bending memoir and described as a work of auto theory, which is thinking about desire and identity and the limitations of um, the, of love and the limitations and possibilities of language and at its heart is the romance between Maggie Nelson and Harry Dodge who is a gender fluid artist um, and then their journey together through Harry's experience taking testosterone and um, Maggie's experience of being pregnant and so it it it's how their intimacy has to evolve over time. But I think also what she gets at is the intimacy of, of reading is a big part of the book and the intimacy of theory and the intimacy of analysis, which is an another kind of intimacy. And I think analyzing the world gets you proximate to other planes of experience. And it's a whole other conversation that I know we don't have time for on this show, but like it's something I think about a lot. Anyway, it's also just, she's a phenomenally good writer. It's a great book. It is a great book. What's um, yours? My pick is Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin, which I'm sure I've also talked about, but it's an astonishing novel. Um, the second he wrote about an American man living in Paris in the 1950s and his love affair with an Italian bartender named Giovanni. I wanted to bring it up, especially because I really was reminded of it while I was reading Cleanness and then interestingly found an article that Garth Greenwell had written about how influential Giovanni's Room was for him, which I can totally see both on, on the level of plot, you know, a queer love story about an American abroad, but also how both authors so delicately depict the emotional shifts and moods that accompany intimacy. And um, this, it's, it's, this is just a very beautiful book. I, I loved it when I read it. And I still think about some of the scenes. There's this wonderful scene where they buy a kilo of cherries and walk happily along the Parisian streets, spitting the pits at one another and feeling very childish and happy. It really is a, a wonderful meditation on happiness, even if the book doesn't end well. That's interesting because there's a scene in God's book where uh, the narrator turns up with a bag of cherries. And I wonder if that was a little reference. Ooh, yeah. Do you know what? That's so funny because I didn't, I don't remember that from Cleanness, but it must be, right? Yeah. He turns up to the protest with a bag of cherries. And it really stood out to me because he describes the sweetness of them in a beautiful way. Interesting. Mm -hmm. 
This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt back here with Octavia Bright and also Garth Greenwell to give our book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start? With pleasure. Um, I want to recommend this month a book called This Brutal House by Niven Govindan, which I absolutely loved. Um, So in terms of plot, the top line is basically that it's set in 80s New York and it's about a silent protest staged by a group of mothers from the Vogue ball scene who have their their own house where they sit on the steps of City Hall um, in a silent protest to draw attention to the fact that their children have been going missing and the authorities aren't doing anything about it. But what makes this book so brilliant is that that's the the kind of conventional setup. But really, it's about a queer oral history and a political call to arms and an exploration of non-traditional family structures and how writing uh, that kind of a story in a queer way is the only way you can really tell it. And there's this wonderful, wonderful voice of the mothers, which is collective and begins in the we from the very beginning. So you have this almost, it feels Grecian, you know, it feels like a a chorus rising up, but then it breaks down in places into pure poetry, but a poetry of this very specific scene. So there's a couple of chapters written entirely in the voice of the Vogue caller, where all he's doing is calling categories. And the way that the categories build is incredibly meaningful and incredibly political, but also like that whole scene, hilarious and witty and spiteful and mordant and all of these things. And then it also gets into the fact that these queer communities were not welcomed by the more traditional structures of reality, the the city, the police force, and how that kind of traditional structure and the more alternative structures rub up against each other and the friction that's created when they do and how actually there needs to be there need to be figures who can be translators and who can create a kind of bridge. So one of the characters in the in the book is in this role of kind of diplomat and translator. And he's one of the children. And it's just, I don't know, it's fabulous. It's absolutely fabulous. It's so creative and exciting and so vivid that you you really feel yourself there. And I think everybody should read it. Everybody. Quite the recommendation. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm very roused by great. it. Yeah. It's fabulous. <laughs> great. Um, Garth, could we have your recommendation, please? Sure. So I think the best new novel that I have read in many years is by Eun Lee, and it's called Where Reasons End. And um, it's a novel that hasn't found the audience that it deserves, um, just in terms of size of audience. Although it has, in the United States, it's um, won some big prizes. So, um, And Eun Lee is revered as a writer. But this book is a hard sell if you just talk about its subject matter. And I think a lot of people are scared off by it. So um, it is a series of conversations between a mother and her 16-year-old son who has just committed suicide. So it's a series of posthumous conversations. And I think when people hear that, they feel like, oh, this book, it's going to be crushing. I can't take it on. And I mean, you know, it's not not crushing, but... There is an extraordinary expansiveness in it. And it's not a book by which you feel brutalized. Quite the contrary. This boy whom, you know, the mother is imagining these conversations with is so alive and so funny and so wonderful. And by the end of this book, which is structured as 16 conversations, 
this is a woman who has received you know, the most grievous wound someone can receive. And yet there is this utter lack of rancor and a kind, a sense of reconciliation that is um, just profoundly moving and somehow profoundly affirmative. And there's a sense in that book that this is someone who has been backed into a very perilous corner and that as a last resort, she has turned to literature and that just barely literature suffices. And so it's just this extraordinary book about survival and reconciliation. And I, I think it's, I, I really do think it's a work of genius. I think it's unlike any other novel I've read. I think it invents something new. So everyone should read it. Do not be scared. It will not make you feel crushed by the end. Um, it's just gorgeous. That sounds beautiful. The book I'm going to recommend this month is The Years by the French memoirist Annie Ernaux. It was published in 2008 and has recently been re republished in the UK by Fitzcarraldo Editions with a really lovely translation from French by Alison L. Strayer. And God, this is like no other book I've really ever read. It's, I guess you could describe it as a kind of collective memoir of France from the post-war years to the present, told in the voice of we. But then it also shifts at points to the third person to describe snapshots from a woman's life who you realize as you read is or know herself. With a lesser writer, I could definitely see this project being tiring or even <laughs> incredibly presumptuous. But she's such a careful, thoughtful and you know beautiful writer with these amazing insights about life that I was absorbed by every page, even when she was describing in detail something like the French elections of 1981. The French are seemingly very into elections. But I think what's great about it is that it's a structure and style that forces you to think about the relationship of the individual to history, collective memory, and also the instability of memory. This is a book that distrusts memory as much as it relies upon it. And that kind of long view of history and deconstruction of the memoir form felt like exactly what I needed right now when everything can feel so trapped in the present moment. She also has some beautiful insights about the life of women, and I can see that the French were doing autofiction way before it became trendy in the English language. So yeah, The Years by Annie Arnaud. She's written a lot of other books, but I was told this is the one to start with, and I would recommend it to everyone. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Garth Greenwell, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram and get in touch with us on email litfriction at gmail.com. Please also rate and review us on iTunes because it really helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another quarantine mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is literary friction.